Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. You're confident when it comes to your life and work. And Rocket Mortgage gives you that same confidence when it comes to refinancing your existing mortgage or buying a home. It lets you understand all the details so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. Go to rocketmortgage.com fool. And also, thanks to Slack for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all your team's communications in one place, making work simpler and more productive. Go to slack.com to learn more. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, Robert. Hello, Allison. Get your polyester on, because it's time for part two of our history of market crashes. In today's episode, Morgan is taking us on two stops in time, first to the 70s to stand in line for gas, and then on to the 80s for Black Monday. We'll also answer your question about whether your kid's IRA will impact their financial aid. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers, Answers, and today's question comes from George. George writes, Robert made the brief statement that assets the child owns is the most unfavorable with regard to financial aid for college. Is that also true for IRAs and other retirement account options? 529s seem very limiting, especially if the child can work for a family business. Well, George, there's several parts to that question, so let me back into it. Um, so, a kid can have an IRA, but only if they have earned income, and they have to be able to document that income. So, they work for the county, they work for, as George points out, a family business. It could be lawn mowing and babysitting, but you got to keep good records and file taxes. But as long as they have the earned income, they can contribute to an IRA. That's great. However, as George points out, in most financial aid formulas, money in the kid's name counts more against aid than money that is in the parent's name. So he's asking whether that impacts the aid. And the bottom line is, assets and retirement accounts don't count for the most part. And I'll get into the most part here later. But you generally don't have to worry about money in retirement accounts. What you do have to worry about with a kid's retirement account is if he or she takes the money out, it will account, it counts as income for financial aid the following year. So they won't count the balance in the IRA this year, but if you take money out to pay for college, do the financial aid application the following year, you have to put it down as income. Now, as I've looked more and more into financial aid, because I have two kids in high school, I've really come to realize that every school does things slightly differently. So, really, my advice would be to go to the schools you think your kids might go to. Most schools have some sort of calculator on their website in which you enter your information and it gives you an idea of how much aid you're eligible for. If you're thinking of putting $3,000 in your kid's IRA, go to the calculator, figure out the aid without the IRA, and then redo it again with the IRA and see if anything changes. I'm guessing it probably won't. But then do it again, but assuming that you took that money out to pay for college and see how the aid is affected. And do that for everything. If you're thinking of buying a house, because most schools don't count home equity, some do. Grandparents can own 529s. The balances, what they have in those 529s for the kid, don't count for most aid calculations. But if you take the money out, it counts the following year. It gets kind of complicated. So, really, your best bet is to go to the schools you're interested in and figure out how they treat various assets and various sources of income. 
Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are, you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand fully so that you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. Today, we're going to tackle two market declines, the energy crisis of the 70s and Black Monday in the 80s. And our tour guide in this journey through tough economic times is Morgan Housel. He's a partner at the Collaborative Fund. Hi, Morgan. Hey, guys. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for Again. Me. Thanks for inviting me back. We always are happy to have you back. Always a pleasure. So last week we talked about the Great Depression, and now we're taking a big jump to the 70s. We're all wearing polyester and sweating, or freezing, because there is no in-between in polyester. And we're waiting in line to fill up our Buick LeSabres. Despite disco, the 70s don't sound like a whole lot of fun. I mean, people made pets out of rocks. That's just sad. <laughs> and, and Bro still drives a, a, a Buick LeSabre. That's not true, fact. but I do still have my pet rock. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, Morgan, take me back to the 70s. This is going to get really geopolitical heavy, right? Yeah. And, and, and you know, when, when talking about the market in the 70s, I think you have to take it back a little bit further and start right at the end of World War II, 1945. And two really important things happened in 1945 that kind of paved the way for what happened in the 70s. Um, and they're, they're, they're sort of interconnected. And one was that at the end of World War II, it was indisputable among every economist, every policymaker that at the end of World War II, once all of the wartime spending contracted, the economy is going to go right back into the Great Depression. You know, and the, the World War II is what pulled us out of the Great Depression in the 30s. And it was assumed by everybody that as soon as that ended, boom, right back into it. And this really freaked out policymakers, especially because you had 13 million U.S. troops that were being demobilized and were going to come home with no job into Great Depression too. So this was a really big deal um, for, for Truman and for all the, the, the policymakers at the time. Uh, and then to add on top of that, because of World War II, the federal government had a massive amount of debt that they built up to pay for World War II, way more than, we ever, than we've ever had since, way more than we have today. Uh, so this is a really big deal. Like, How are we going to deal with this? Maybe this is going to be worse than the Great Depression because we have all this debt now. So they really did two things. One is the Federal Reserve, which was much more politicized back then than it is now, basically said, no worries, we'll keep interest, we'll keep interest rates at 0%. Because the federal government, you have all this debt that you, if interest rates shoot up, you won't be able to pay for it. So we'll just keep interest rates at 0%. Guys, don't worry about it. We got you. That was one thing. The other thing that they did at the federal government level was for all the troops coming home, they really made an effort to say, we got to make sure that these people have jobs and that they turn into consumers. And like, what can we do for them? So there's a lot that went on with the GI Bill and, and, uh, and other works programs. Um, but two other things that they did was they, made, they really loosened the restrictions on getting a mortgage and consumer credit to kind of turn people into consumers so they could really start buying stuff. And both of those things worked. Both of those things worked really well. The federal government you know, kept control of its debt in the 1950s and 60s, and the debt that was accumulated from World War II kind of got pared down over time, wasn't that big a deal. And also, particularly in the 50s and 60s, you, the, the U.S. economy was great because consumers were buying homes, they were buying houses, they were buying refrigerators. And because Japan and Germany at the time were kind of literally in rubble, the U.S. kind of had a monopoly on the world economy, more or less. So the 50s and 60s were just this huge boom time, basically where everything went right in the U.S. economy. It sounds like the lesson is there's no problem that you can't spend your way out of it. Well, see, <laughs> it, it, it worked well. No, that, that's actually a, a good point to make because 
that amount of spending worked really well in the 50s and 60s. Um, for various reasons, um, one, you know, as I mentioned, because a lot of the developed world, particularly Japan and, and Europe, was just trying to rebuild themselves. You know, it, it worked that we could spend all this money because we had a, a, a monopoly on global manufacturing. So even though we're spending all this money, we had the capacity to build it. We also built up manufacturing so much during the war to build tanks and airplanes and whatnot that we had all this manufacturing capacity to build cars and refrigerators and washing machines. So it really wasn't that much of a problem with interest rates low and having that much debt. It just kind of worked. And I think that set up a sense of complacency among policymakers at the Fed and at the president level, at the treasury level, and among consumers, that a you know monetary policy and fiscal policy for the government didn't matter that much. Like we got this down, we haven't really had any big consequences from it for a long time. For a long time, so you just kind of get complacent from it. And U.S. consumers too, I think, really got complacent with the lifestyle that they were living. That the U.S. would kind of own the world economy, that interest rates were going to stay low, that there was always going to be a good-paying job right down the street. And then, so like those two senses of complacency kind of cracked in the late '60s and early '70s. A lot of it started with when spending for Vietnam came along, and then wartime spending had to jump back up again. But interest rates were still low, and because the rest of the world economy was kind of coming back online from World War II, a lot of that spending and uh, debt that was being taken out for Vietnam started to trigger inflation, which the U.S. really hadn't experienced at all since the 1920s. So it had been half a century at this point before you. Since you've dealt with inflation, which just sets up a lot of complacency, which is just a long way of saying inflation's really started picking up in the early 1970s, and that has all kind of impacts on investments in the stock market. Yeah, this is like the when we were talking about planning for this series. This is the longest span between between episodes in time, yeah. right? So we did Great Depression, and then fast forward thirty years later, that is the sound of nothing fasting forward. But <laughs> yeah. anyway, you know my point. Yeah, so it sounds like it sounds like it worked for a really long time until it didn't. Yeah. When are we going to start talking about energy? Because I thought this was about energy. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's one of the big things. Because we bought big cars. That's it. Well, that's 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 a really great point. Is that so? As oil prices started rising in the nineteen. 70s, it had a huge impact on the U.S. economy, more so than it would today or did in 2008, the last time that oil prices spiked, because energy energy efficiency in the 1970s was awful. You had your average car that was getting seven miles per gallon, and trucks, semi trucks that were getting three miles per gallon, which is way it was just so inefficient. And when oil was cheap in the 50s and 60s, when the U.S. kind of was just own the world economically, that wasn't that big a deal because oil was cheap; it didn't matter. But as you get into the, the 70s and oil prices start rising and the oil prices double and then triple, it had a way bigger impact on the economy than it would today just because uh, oil as a share of most people's spending was much higher back then than it is today. Even when oil prices doubled in 2008, the share of most people's income that went to gas was still a fraction of what it was in the 1970s. So it just had a much bigger impact on the economy back then. And also because we had been you know, at this point, 30 or even 40 years since the economy was in really bad shape during the 1930s and the Great Depression, you get uh, not only complacency, but just a sense of shock among consumers who've never seen a really, a really bad economy. And I think that it causes a lot of retrenchment, both for companies that say, well, maybe we shouldn't hire as many people because we don't know what's going to happen next. And among consumers who say, who start saying and like start forming a mentality that I don't know if my job is going to be here next month, so we should slash our spending this month. 
And you know, the, so then you have high inflation coming in from the energy markets, which was a lot of, you know, a lot of ge- geopolitical instability in the Middle East and in Egypt and Iran. And then you mix that with kind of just a, a lingering recession in the United States, and it all kind of came to the head, came to a head in, in the mid 1970s with both recessions and a pretty bad market crash. Just to put some numbers on it, when you look at the 70s as a decade, U.S. large cap stocks, stocks averaged six percent a year, so that's significantly below the 10% you always hear about. But on top of that, inflation was 7.5% a year. So even though your portfolio was growing on a nominal basis, you were losing purchasing power each and every year. And that was a, that was not only true for the stock market, but especially true, I think, for Treasury bonds, which are back then and today are seen as the safest asset or even a riskless asset. If you invest in Treasury bonds, there's no risk involved in that. But during this period, from from like the late '50s to the early '80s, let's say, Treasury bonds lost so much money to to inflation that if you invested in Treasury bonds in the late '50s, by the early 1980s, you had lost half your money in real terms, adjusted for inflation. And that's I think really easy for investors to overlook because they often don't subtract inflation from their investments at the end of the year to really get a sense of how much money did I actually, how much wealth did I actually gain this year. But it had a huge impact on investing um, during this period. And then the other thing, as this feeds into the stock market, is that you know stocks compete with other assets for returns. It's just a big competition of of uh, among stocks and bonds and real estate of what asset class is offering the best returns, and that's where investors are going to put their money. So as interest rates start rising, they become more attractive relative to stocks. And because of that, when you have a period where now the interest rates are rising in the 70s, so you can buy government bonds that yield 7%, 8%, 10%. Now stocks look way less attractive because you can earn a 10% return in bonds. So stock prices needed to fall and fall a lot just to kind of make up the the the, the parity by comparison with bonds. And so that's that's what really dragged stock prices down in the 1970s was the fact that bonds got way more attractive because interest rates were rising. And it was a slow drag, right? Like there wasn't like a big major market crash like when we're going to talk about a, Black Monday here later. Was, yeah. was there was, or was not, there a major market not, crash? Not not the one day crashes that happened in 1929 or 1987, but 1974 is a really bad year for stocks. So you had some bad years, but no overnight crashes like the other periods. But but it was bad year after bad year. Or even like even in the 1970s, there were a couple really good years. So it was kind of a, a period of just a lot of uh, jumping back, just pinballing back and forth, where you had years where the market would be down 40% one year and then up 30% the next year, and then down 20% the next year. So the during the 1970s, it was just a, a pretty chaotic time all around. And then on top of those returns or lack thereof, you had not disco. only high but rising inflation and it's disco. disco. Which, I, mean, I mean, come which on, which is awesome, by the way. Yeah. Like you imagine seeing your portfolio and then going home to disco. <laughs> like I don't know how I don't know how people did it. <laughs> just one day at a time, right? Man. Just, just trying to trudge through. <laughs> So I think one of the the important historical aspects of this, or the consequences, are that people basically sort of gave up on stocks. Yeah, they started moving into gold and real estate and saying basically stocks were for suckers. And and famously in 1979, Newsweek had a an issue, and the cover was the death of equities, basically saying no one invests in stocks anymore. And of course, at that point, it would have been the best time to invest right. in stocks. But people had given up. Yeah, and really, why why would you invest in a risky asset when you can go out to the bank and get a CD that was yielding 13 percent? Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. But but the CD that was yielding twelve percent was during a time when inflation was ten or eleven percent. Mm. So 
it, it was a, it was a pretty crazy time time all around. And even though I obviously wasn't an investor or even a, a person back then, you definitely when, when you read when, when you read about the the period and read what people were writing at the time. It, it wasn't just pessimism at the moment, but a sense of like long-term pessimism. Whereas, like, I, I think the U.S., you know, as the world's global as leading economy is is over. Very similar to I think what you saw in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, where people really saw it as a paradigm shift back to something else. Interesting too. This is like around the period where both Japan and Germany had effectively rebuilt themselves in World War II, and their economies started not just growing but surging. Particularly Japan, around you know, starting in the late '70s, early '80s, was really looking like it was going to become the world's dominant economy, and just by leaps and bounds, not only in economic growth but technology and innovation, you know, was really kind of running laps around the U.S. at the point, which added to the sense of pessimism in the United States. Right, to the that extent they were falling behind. Yeah. Right? Robert Schiller used the term "animal spirits," and when you look at the '70s, if you just in terms of the zeitgeist of the time, you had Watergate, you had the Vietnam War, you had the OPEC and the oil crisis which made, it, made us feel like we're a little powerless against these other countries. I was around for the 1970s. I was born in 69. And, and what I remember were the long gas lines. And I remember that my first car was a 1977 Lincoln Continental, and it got six miles to the six gallon. Six miles to the gallon. <laughs> six miles to the gallon. That's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, someone, someone's made the joke that you should start measuring that in gallons per mile. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you read like what New York City was like in the 70s. Like, crime was, oh, it was, was yeah, such like an a issue. world country back yes. then. Yes. Yeah, it was pretty scary. The blackouts that happened in the 70s. It just felt different. I had a friend who had, like, a, a 1970-something Ford pickup truck, real old pickup truck, and he said that when he was driving up a hill, if he floored it, he could see the gas gauge moving <gasps> on his car. He was, pretty, he was probably exaggerating, but I always like that story. <laughs> yep. All right, so it was kind of a slow-burning economic mess. How did we come out of it? I, I, I think if there's, there are a few times when talking about these events where you can point to one person and say that person pulled it out. But I, I think in this event, you can point to Paul Volcker, yeah. who was the Fed chairman in the early 1980s. A maker of rules. Right, right. But, not, but, <laughs> I've, but heard, I've heard of his rules. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that's right, that's right. Yeah, he, he kind of came back in the last couple of years with the Volcker rule. Mm-hmm. But he did something in the early 80s that I think very few people in the history of the Fed would do, which he was fearless about jacking up interest rates as high as they needed to go, and brought interest rates up to close to 20%, which made this economic you know, recession and pain that much worse. A lot of businesses went out of business that had, you know, that were trying to refinance, had to refinance their debt, but now interest rates are 20%, so there's no way you can refinance it. Really caused a lot of pain in the economy, but it, it broke the back of inflation, which is what needed to happen. And Paul Volcker, during the time, it's funny, now that we, in hindsight, I think a lot of people think Volcker is a hero. I think he's almost universally seen as a hero today. In the 80s, he was probably the least popular person yeah. in America. Yeah. So much so that he was, I think he was the first Fed chairman that had a Secret Service detail because people Whoa. at the Fed built an effigy of him and burned it Wait, on the steps of the Fed. His own employees did that? No, not his own employees, but somebody. Oh, okay. But, it, but a ton, I mean, he was truly one of the least popular people in America at the time because it was viewed, and I think even rightly viewed, like his actions were driving the economy into the ground. And it's true they were, but they were also, you know, uh, at the same time killing what needed to be killed. It's almost like with, with chemotherapy; like it's going to destroy your body, 
and 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 it's awful. And from the outside, it's like God, chemotherapy is the worst thing ever. But at the same time, it's killing the worst disease. Mm-hmm. And that was what Volcker was doing in the eighties. Wow. So it took several years of doing it, but finally in the early eighties, about eighty three or eighty four, is when things inflation and interest rates started falling again. And then you have the opposite effect of rising interest rates are bad for stocks. And then all of a sudden now, 83, 84, interest rates are plunging, which is great for stocks. And then and it's bonds. Reagan, Morning in America, and bonds too. Yeah. Inflation's falling, you got a new president who's a lot of optimism. So then you start the 80s boom and rally. That's right. It's the 80s. We're taking, we're going on our next stop in this tour. Miles per gallon is up to eight miles a gallon now. It's awesome. Progress. No. a little bit. Progress. No. We're not we're not even taking cars. We're taking our yachts everywhere. The 70s were a bummer. So we're gonna go someplace a heck of a lot more fun, and that's the 80s. Everyone is doing cocaine, like I mentioned. They're yachting to their jobs on Wall Street. Greed is good. Shoulder pads are huge. Did you, say, did you say everyone was doing cocaine in the 80s? Yeah, that's what that's what that's what I know about right, the 80s. Yeah, Let's just move on. You were alive in the 80s. Were you doing cocaine? Maybe we shouldn't talk about this. No. Okay. I was a toddler. Uh, But no, if you watch, like, if you watch the old movies and the old TV shows, and everything is all just big and glitzy. And anyway, it was this huge party that was never going to end, probably because of the cocaine. So here we go. (laughs) We're coming up into October 1987. Stocks have done incredibly well for the past, you know, I guess five years at this point, four or five years. Yep. Stock prices had about tripled at this point. Uh, the unemployment rate had come way down. Reagan is 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 very popular as a president because of I think the economic performance at the time. So again, I think it's just a back to what Bro was saying about animal spirits. You just kind of I, I like tracking just what is the average mood at the time. In the 50s and 60s, it was great. 70s was really bad. In the 80s, it went to great again. People were really optimistic about the economy, what was happening um, you know, in the United States and the stock market. This is actually during the peak of when Japan was really looking like it was yeah. going to take right. over the world. So I think there was some anxiety about that, that the U.S. was, in terms of innovation and growth, distinctly number two at this point, even though it was a much larger economy. But but overall, there was, there was quite a bit of optimism, and the stock market had done really well right up until... October 1987. All right. Are we ready? Are we ready for October 1987? Which, of course, is like effectively 30 years ago when this podcast is airing. So so it's sweater weather (laughs) in New York City. And what happened? Well, I I think one of the really interesting parts about this, uh, it was Alan Greenspan's third day on the job. Oh. Oh, wow. And so Alan Greenspan is, you know, in charge of the U.S. economy and everything that ties into it at this point. And and his uh, his background before he joined the Fed was he was he was basically an academic. He had, he was an economic consultant, but not that much experience in high levels of politics where you have to deal with all the the different dynamics of politics. So I, I imagine being thrust into the Fed chairman job at that point when you don't have a heavy background in politics, and then seventy two hours into the job. Uh, the stock market fell more than 20% in one day. And why? Why did it do that? Here's what's interesting about the crash of 87. This is true for the crash of 29, too. 30 years later, people are still debating about why it happened. And there's not a lot of consensus about why it happened. Maybe this, too, gets back to the animal spirits of sometimes just the stories that we tell ourselves change really quickly. Mm -hmm. If there was one technical aspect that happened in 87... There was a thing in the 1980s that was really popular called portfolio insurance, which was a product that's not around anymore. It was a terrible idea, but it was a, effectively an insurance policy that 
you know, if you, you own stocks, that insurance policy against it, and if the stocks fell by a certain amount, you had insurance policy that would sell a basket of stocks and repay. It was a really complicated arrangement that tried to de-risk investing, as a lot of investment products do. But the practical reality of it was that if stocks started falling a little bit, these stock insurance policies would sell stocks to make up for those losses, and then it just snowballed on itself, where losses triggered selling, which triggered more losses, which triggered more selling. And it just happened really quick. And this is kind of at the very early bleeding edge of when people were using computers to invest, both to execute trades and to kind of like see what was going on in the world. I mean, computers in 87 were absolutely archaic compared to today. Mm-hmm. But it was the first time, you know, getting into the point where before that, for all of history, the stock market was entirely face to face. You had traders on the floor that would literally yell at each other mm-hmm. to, to trade orders. And this was the first time that it was, it was computers that were starting to make some of the decisions. And uh, you know, from, from what I understand, and again, there's not a lot of consensus about this, but because it was so early, the computers that were set up doing this had no idea what they were doing and just weren't, didn't communicate with each other very well, were prone to all kinds of glitches, weren't, just weren't really thought out. The architecture of it wasn't really thought out very well. And it just kind of fed on itself in one day to where selling beget more selling. And the next thing you know, it feeds on itself. And that just creates fear among human investors, not the computers that we're selling, that causes them to sell. Um, and it, it just spreads from there. And the pervasive view at the time after this happened, the day of the crash of 87, um, you go back and read the newspapers, everything had the same headline was, this is the crash of 1929, and we're going back into the Great Depression. That was the view that everyone had back then. And it makes a lot of sense, because that was effectively how the crash of 87, or of 29 started. You had a big run up in the 20s, and all of a sudden, overnight, everything comes to an end. But that didn't happen, right? It didn't. That's the really amazing thing about this with the crash of 87, is that I think eight months later, the market was back at an all-time high. Like in this, if you <laughs> yeah. look at a long-term chart of the stock market, eighty-seven is a—you can barely see it. It's right. a, a dot that barely happened. The stock, the stock market actually made money for the whole in year. that year and yeah. in nineteen eighty-eight as well. Is so, it maybe just a matter of great branding, like being able to say Black Monday? Like if it hadn't yeah, been named yeah. Black Monday, would we have forgotten about, about, about it? it? Gives journalists yeah. something yeah. to talk about. But yeah, that's that's really the amazing thing, is that in. In, in hindsight, it was nothing. It didn't really do anything to the economy. didn't really do much to the stock market within eight months. And now it is mainly, like when we talk about the Great Depression, we talk about the human suffering, the unemployment. When people talk about the crash of 87, it's mostly just for, like, for entertainment, right. honestly, because not much came from it. But it's, if anything, it's just a show of what, uh, of the, the disconnect that often happens between what companies and businesses are doing and what stock prices do as they react to just kind of the architecture of the stock market that is independent from the businesses that people are investing in. In the summer of 1988, I was a sophomore in college, and I worked for my high school English teacher's husband, who was a broker for Merrill Lynch back then. I was just doing errands and cold calling for seminars and stuff like that. But I remember the, the event of 1987, and it stuck with me, number one, that stocks were too risky. And I remember saying to him, isn't this just all a bunch of gambling? And I got a, a good lecture about why investing isn't <laughs> isn't gambling. But when I look back on that day, I think back like you could you most people did not have computers to check stock prices. Mm-hmm. There was no CNBC. You didn't know the price of your stock unless you called up your broker or you waited until the newspaper the next day. 
So I think people back then felt more like a little bit more out of control yeah. because they didn't know what was going on. They didn't. They might have seen on the news that the Dow dropped, but they didn't necessarily know what their individual stocks did. And they couldn't just get on their computer and sell if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. They had to wait until they could get their broker on on the phone to make the transaction. So I think I think when you think of investing back then, people felt a little bit more like they don't have as much control of, over what's going on. A little bit more of sort of a victim of what's of these big drops in their portfolios. I often wonder, though, even though I, I, I agree with that, but I think there is a devil's advocate to make of people have so much information today that maybe they have too much. I think that's possible, yeah. And it's, you know, the, you and know, it's so much easier the to The fact that you can just be too. at the gym and then get a push alert on your phone that says Dow's down 100 points, that's not healthy. Right. But and then a pick lot a of people have that. And say, sell, sell, sell. It's funny, like, there's, there, when, when you buy an iPhone, there aren't that many apps that come pre installed, but one of them that's right on the home screen for everyone is the stock app. Is the stock app. Which is yeah. cool. Like, I, I like that. But I think that mentality. Or just what that what that brings to a lot of people is unhealthy, and it's something that people didn't have 30 years ago. Yeah, constantly being tied into it, especially because so much of what is quote unquote news today is actually just commentary, and that's even charitable. It's just opinion, <laughs> and especially around crashes, crash of 2009, whatnot. There's a big thing in in the pundit world where people want to be. Like this, particularly around 2009, everyone wanted to be the guy on to go on CNBC and say the world's coming to an end. This hasn't even begun yet. We're going to go back to the Great Depression because that person got like famous. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the amount of commentary that we have today is is probably unhealthy compared to what it was back then. I think I spent half my days back then answering calls from from clients giving stock quotes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And there, I mean, you would get some people who would call back. Every day, and you knew the ten stocks that they own, so you just run them down. But how would you do it? Did you have a computer? Yeah, you had, you you had, had a, a, a what a they call it. He's made it up. They called a quotron. <laughs> He's like, ah, oh, no. I had some dice. I'd roll them. I had my twenty-sided D and D dice. So you caused Black Monday that's exactly. That <laughs> it's something called the quotron, and you the quotron. The quotron. It. it didn't have yeah. a number after that. The quotron. Quotron four thousand. Yeah. yeah, maybe it did, but yeah, and you just put it in, and then that's you got the number. Yeah. All right. Well, do you have a? Uh, I feel like you actually have already given us a takeaway lesson. Do you have a takeaway, a final thought? No, or? no disco, no polyester. That's really that's the main takeaways from this. No, polyester, I think, no disco. Yes, I, I think on. I think in the seventies, you're the only bull on disco. Maybe I'm gonna start singing some ABBA songs here. I think a takeaway from the seventies um, is the extent to which interest rates and inflation drive stock market valuations. And if people ask, why has the stock market done so well in the past eight or nine years? It's because interest rates have been low and stayed low. And that's made stocks really attractive compared to bonds, which is the main competition for investors' money. So I think, actually, just a couple days ago, Warren Buffett was on CNBC. And he said, if he if he could have just one piece of information that was going to tell him what stock prices are going to do over the next ten years, it's what interest rates are going to do over the next ten years. Hmm. If you know what interest rates are going to do in the future, you have a pretty good idea of what the stock market's going to do because it's really kind of the anchor, uh, and or the, either the anchor or the fuel that's going to move what what stock prices are doing. So and and that goes again too again for. Uh, you know, for the next ten years, I think what is going to break the stock market rally and really cause you know, the markets to plunge? Well, there are a number of things, but certainly what almost certainly would do it is if interest rates really start rising. So that's a big takeaway from the 1970s and the 80s. For the 80s, I, I think it's I, I think it's two things. It's again, as I mentioned, the disconnect between 
the architecture of the stock market and the functioning of businesses that you're investing in. It can be two completely different things. Uh, and, and sometimes those things get you know, 10 miles apart, like they did in October 1987, where there was no connection between what the profits that businesses were earning and the 20% crash in one day. And, and, and I think just keeping that in mind and always focusing on the business you're investing in versus the day-to-day action in the stock market, even when it's enormous, is incredibly difficult for people to do, but it's one of the most imperative skills as an investor. So now that we've relived some of the lowlights of the 70s and 80s, Morgan, you get to stick around and we're going to relive some of the highlights and some of the newsworthy events. I'm ready. All right, let's see who wins this round. Thanks to Slack for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all of your team's communications in one place, making your working lives simpler and more productive. Slack will help you reduce emails and streamline your team's communications by connecting the tools and services you need in one place. All the cool kids are using it, like Capital One, Electronic Arts, and us! The Motley Fool runs on Slack. It's so true. I wonder if you could use Slack for like managing your family's communications. That's a good idea. We got to get on that. Let's see if we can get Slack for family. Anyway, Slack allows us here at The Fool to organize teams and with real time messaging, voice and video calls. We can do group file sharing, searchable archives. It's all in one easy to use app, also on our desktop. It's great. Slack, where work happens. Find out why at slack.com. So, for this series, after we talk about the market crash, we get to talk about the rest of the decades and the time periods around this and um, have some trivia where I know all the answers and you guys don't. So, again, some of these we have the categories of art and literature, geography, science and tech, history, sports and leisure, entertainment, your typical trivial pursuit categories. Um, Some of these questions you will absolutely get, some of them I don't expect you will, but that's why it's called a game. Maybe you'll surprise me. Surprise me. All right. So, Morgan, you get to go first. All right, let's do history. As you remember, um, since these are all historical questions, history in particular, um, I'm just basing on the Time Magazine People of the Year. It's kind of a cop-out, but I don't care. (laughs) It works. If you were a U.S. president or a communist in the 70s or 80s, you were pretty much a shoo-in for being named a Person of the Year by Time Magazine. However, things got weird again in both 1982 and 1988, when what was named Machine of the Year in 1982, and what was named Planet of the Year in 1988. Imagine it's computer and Jupiter. Oh, Saturn? it's Earth. Really? Yeah. Oh. Do you know why? Because it's endangered. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's it was oh so close. It was the computer, yes, and the endangered planet Earth was Planet of the Year. Wow. Earth, you're my Planet of the Year every year. Let's <laughs> that was, be I, honest. I remember, that was that was an acid rain was a big. Oh, remember acid rain? We were yes. terrified yeah. of acid yep. rain. Especially as a kid. That was good branding. When your teacher basically, what's acid rain? Oh, rain, it's going to burn your skin. You're terrified as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so Such effective communications. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, bro, your turn. Let's go with entertainment. Entertainment. All right. Oh, you're going to totally get this one. We'll see. Liam Neeson unsuccessfully auditioned for the role of what movie character after the movie's director, Rob Reiner, scoffed, You're only six foot four? Wow, The Princess Bride. Yes! yes. But what was the character? Andre the Giant. uh, What was the character in the movie that he auditioned for, the role that Liam Neeson auditioned for? 
Fezzik? Yes. So, of course, the role actually went to seven foot four inch Andre the Giant. According to IMDb, other auditions that didn't pan out was Arnold Schwarzenegger and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as wow. Fezzik. Danny DeVito as Vizzini, Uma Thurman, Courtney Cox, and Meg Ryan as Buttercup, and Christopher Reeve as Wesley. What What if Danny DeVito was Fezzik? That would have been funny. That would be funny. <laughs> Those are all good choices. Uh, so what's crazy is that this much-beloved fairy tale is returning to theaters for its 30th anniversary on October 15 and 18. Nice. Cool. Yeah, isn't that crazy? 30th yeah. is the first movie I ever saw in a theater. Wow. Field trip. Yeah, we should totally do that. <laughs> all right, bro, you get that one. Morgan, your turn. Science and tech. Science and tech. The personal computer, microwaves, cable TVs, VCRs, Walkmans, mobile phones, gaming systems, so many other technologies started invading our lives in the 70s and 80s. You could even say they were space invading our lives, because that was also big. Whatever. <laughs> but I would rather ask you to guess the name of this office staple that was invented by accident and hit the shelves in 1980. It also dominates every brainstorming session at The Motley Fool. Post-it notes. Yes! <laughs> the original Post-it notes came out in 1980, which is crazy, because wow. I thought Post-it notes have been around since like yeah. the 60s. They feel like a very 50s, 60s thing. Anyway, the original notes yellow color was chosen by accident, and it was because the lab next door uh, to the Post-it team only had yellow scraps of paper to use. So, there, you, there go. you go. That one goes to Morgan. The amount of cool things are invented by accident. Yeah. This is like a big reason for pessimism. Like, should we even try? Should we even try to do stuff? <laughs> just, like, all I'm the cool go. things are just going to be mistakes, anyways. <laughs> just try some accidents. See right. what happens. All right, bro, your turn. Golly. Um, I'll go with art and literature, I guess. Art and literature. All right. As we already talked on the show, Picture it, New York in the 80s. Grime, graffiti, and gallery openings. One artist experienced it all when he catapulted from the streets and literal homelessness to an overnight sensation in the art world before dying, dying of a heroin overdose in 1988 at the age of 27. Hmm. I have no idea. Maplethorpe. I have no idea. <laughs> no? Do you know, Rick? Rick? Warhol? Nope. I was going to say Warhol, but he, he was Warhol. not young. He yeah. was not young. Close. Jean-Michel Basquiat. Yeah. What? Yeah, so in, in May of 2017, his 1982 painting of a skull brought in $110 million at Sotheby's. Oh, it became the sixth, sixth most expensive work ever sold at auction. Only 10 other works have broken the $100 million mark. It was purchased by Japanese billionaire. Basquiat's vibrant painting, here you go, that's what it looks like. Set the record. Podcast not, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, how would you describe it? It looks like a skull. It looks graffiti. It looks like a graffiti. It looks like skull. something that no one in the right amount would pay hundred million dollars for. Well, it set many records. Not only for the most uh, ever paid for a work by an American artist, it was the most for a work by an African American artist, and it was the first work created since 1980 to make over a hundred million. Impressive. Morgan, your turn. Uh, geography. In May of 1980, a 5.1 magnitude earthquake triggered this geological event that killed 57 people and caused $1.1 billion in damage in the United States. That's no, in 1980? Mm -hmm. May of 1980. This hits close to your home. Is it Northridge? No. San Francisco? Hits close to your, close, closer to your home, where you're from. I don't know. Mount St. Helens? Yeah! Oh, okay. okay. Yes, Mount St. Helens erupted, um, which is terrifying. San Francisco is way closer to my home than St. Helens. I thought you were from Seattle. No, I lived in Seattle for a while, but I grew up in Lake Tahoe. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, no. you grew up in that's nice. Yeah. Lake Tahoe is gorgeous. Yeah, but it's, it's kind of boring to live. Uh, Unless you ski. It's good you to ski? Visit. I did. You skied. I know you skied. 
playful there. You skied. I you, know you did. You were like a competitive skier. You didn't just ski. A different life, yeah. Yeah. You didn't go to like a normal high school, right? Yeah. yeah did you right. go to ski school just like in the 80s movie? <laughs> Better Off Dead was based on your life, isn't it? <laughs> oh, boy. So Mount St. Helens, of course, it was this mountain in part of the ring of fire in our tectonic plates in this world and it blew up and a ton of people died and th- the pictures are insane it looks like snow like there's yeah. so much ash that yeah. fell on people and they also said that it, it darkened the skies so much so it, the street lights came on all the way in Spokane which unless you really wow. know your geography That's you're not going to be impressed yeah. about but yeah uh, although I'm more terrified of um the earthquake that's coming, where basically all of the West Coast is going to drop into the ocean. Into the sea, right? Yes, you're going to have acid rain in the Ring of Fire. It's <laughs> terrifying. Yeah, Wait, yeah, that was one of the things we were afraid of in the '80s. Acid rain. No, the earthquake that's going to drop California into the ocean. Yes, I oh. remember that. No, I just got scared that was about the it. The Superman plot. The New Yorker article yeah. is what made me terrified of yeah. it. And Catherine Schultz Ooh. wrote about it. It's, it's so terrifying. We'll already be dead from the super volcano in Yellowstone. It's basically like the, mm-hmm. in the Seattle area, there's only an earthquake every like two to 500 years. But when it happens, it's astronomically powerful. But since it happens so infrequently, like we're not prepared for it at all. Almost sounds like some sort of market crash here or there, right? Like <laughs> To come full circle here. Yeah, yeah. All right, last category is sports and leisure. Are you ready? Football, Are you ready, football, bro? Football. While it was designed to attract women, everyone got the fever for this arcade game in 1982. The name comes from the Japanese onomatopoeia for eating. Paku Paku. Oh, that's easy. Come on. Pac-Man? Yeah. Oh, there we go. It was originally supposed to be called Puck-Man in the United States because it resembled a, he resembled a hockey puck, but someone very smart realized the vandalism potential for a game <laughs> called Puck-Man. I don't so. get it. Can you explain that? To nope. Me, okay. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's it for the game. I think Brew won, but I'm not positive because we all know how bad we're, I am at keeping score. We're he always wins. Uh, Morgan... <laughs> Thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Where can our listeners find you in the world if they want uh, to read? On, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, my screen name is Morgan Housel, one word. Or you can go to collaborativefund.com. And what are you, uh, what are you writing about lately? All, all, kinds, of, all kinds of stuff. Whatever, whatever, whatever hits my mind. <laughs> stuff and things. No, that's true. I, I mean, it's all kind of under the, the idea of business and investing in psychology. But I, I try to take it in as many different directions as I can. Just to keep from going insane. Talk about stuff. Yeah, you write about good you stuff. You write about one topic. You can write three articles on it. You got nothing else to say. So you got to mix it up a little bit. All right. So there you go. Head to the Collaborative Fun blog where Morgan stuff. mixes it up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Morgan, for joining us. Thanks. show thanks again to morgan for joining us if you want more morgan head over to the collaborative funds website at collaborativefund.com blog that's where morgan writes you can read all his columns and get his latest thoughts on investing economics behavioral finance it's delightful the show is edited feverishly by rick engdahl our email is answers at fool.com drop us a line we'd love to hear from you For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.